Good morning, Renewal. Hope you guys are doing well, enjoying this summer weather out here. I know it was it's a little hot, and but but we're gonna be all right, amen. We got a barbecue after church. I'm looking forward to having a cookout with you guys, getting to know uh, you a little bit more, and eating some good food with you guys. Um, if you're new with us, I just want to say welcome and reiterate what. Uh, Dan said this morning, won't you fill out one of those perforated edges of the bulletin that you received on the way in? If you didn't receive one of those, you can go to our info table right outside. You can pick one of those up, take that edge off, and you can leave it right there. If you can't find anybody, leave somebody, leave it right there. We'd love to get in touch with you. I'd love to call you and get to know you a little bit more um, and see how we can get you plugged into our church here at Renewal Church of Chicago. I am so thankful that you joined us this morning, and it is good to be back with you all. Man, I missed y'all. I missed worship too, man. Thank you, Jesus. Well, without further ado, let's get into the text this morning. Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, uh, verses 25 through 32. Uh, a few weeks ago when I was here, we started a series with myself. We started talking about the uh, younger brother a little bit. Today, I want to talk about the elder brother. Did y'all enjoy Luke's series, Peter Rebuilt? Come on now. It's good for my soul to hear different preaching and also for me to be able to take a break too. So I'm glad that he did that. And y'all gonna have to talk to me because these fans in here are kind of loud and I can't hear you, all right? Dang. <laughs> Luke chapter uh, verses 25 to 32. We're going to talk about this elder brother. He's the brother that nobody really pays attention to about a lot of times. He's the prodigal really in here to say it this way. This is not just a prodigal son. This is the story of a father with two lost sons. Two lost sons. One that goes on out and he tries to find his worth and, and wayward living and doing what he wants to do. And then you have the other one who's sitting here with his father doing what he's supposed to do and he thinks he gets a reward. See, there's two lost sons because both of them missed the father's love. So Luke chapter 15 verses 25 through 32. If you got it, won't you stand to your feet with me if you're able? Starting in verse 25, the text reads, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safely and sound. But he was angry and refused to go to his father. And he came out and entreated him. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that I have or all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The very words of God, amen. Today I want to preach on the Father's love, part two. Can you say that with me, the Father's love, part two? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your love, your mercy, and your grace, God. I just pray one thing simply right now, and that be that you would hide me behind your cross, that you would be lifted up in this place, 
and that your words will fall afresh on your people, that it would not be me preaching, but it would be you, God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. God, we love you. We pray these things in your mighty name. And everyone said together, amen, amen. Eat it. I remember being in fifth grade. Anybody remember being in fifth grade? I was about 12 years old, and back then, we didn't have Wi-Fi and all those good things. You know, we, we played outside. Anybody remember playing outside? You know, when it was hot, you just came back in the house to get Kool-Aid, and then you went back outside. It was like, I don't want to get stuck in the house, because if I get stuck in the house, that means I'm going to have to do things. So I'm going to go back outside, I'm going to play, see? So everybody was outside. I was always outside. We didn't have Wi-Fi. You know, we had that internet, that dial-up thing, you know, where you got on the phone, and if somebody got on the phone while you're on the internet, you get, get off the phone, because it's, it's cutting you off, you know, that stuff on the phone. Y'all remember, some of y'all don't even know what I'm talking about. Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi didn't always exist. We would be outside, and everybody had, we all had bikes. We had bikes, and, and I had this bike, it was this purple bike. Yeah, y'all can laugh. I had a purple bike. Had two different colored wheels on it. It was a, a bike that and I had put together it with various different parts. It was old, you know, so I had to figure out how to put it together. And I had pegs on the back, so if somebody wanted to ride with me, you know, we could roll down the street. I had my, my bike was put together. You know, it, it, it was kind of like some of those jeans back in the day where you, you, they had form fit to you, and you, you loved them. You had them for a few years, and now they're starting to get holes, so you put patches on them, so you, you wanted to make them last a little longer. Now y'all can buy that stuff, but back then it wasn't because you wanted to look cool. It was like... Like you needed some jeans and you now so that's what we did and, and that was my bike I put it together with all these different various pieces this was my makeshift BMX bike you see so when my birthday rolled around you know what I wanted right you could guess it I wanted a bike I wanted a bike with it with the spokes, the nice spokes on it, matching wheels, you know, pegs in the back and in the front, the handlebars where you could actually sit on it, and the U-brake system. So if I spent it around like this, I could do tricks and I wouldn't fall or bust my head or anything. I wanted that real bike, you know. But the problem was these bikes cost about $150. And at the time, we had just moved from Gary, Indiana to Indianapolis, so my mother didn't have any money, and we lived in the household with my uncle, and I'm sleeping on the couch. We, we didn't have much money at the time. So, 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 but, but I didn't care. I'm like, I still want this bike. So I knew if I just worked hard enough, if I was respectful enough, if I was good enough, I might just get that bike, you know, because at 12 years old, anybody with a 12 year old boy, you know, we're a trip. 12 year old boys. I, I was bad. I wasn't always pastor Derek. I was, I was, I was bad out there. <laughs> standing here before you see I, I wasn't always who I am today so so I put on the performance of my life y'all I, I, I was sweeping floors and mopping everything you know I was yes mamming to my mom no man she's like well what's got into you you never called me ma'am before I'm like yeah you know <laughs> that bike you know that bike birthday rolls around wake up that morning no bike I'm mad, like, my bike, I've worked hard, I've earned this bike, I should have my bike. So I start whining and crying, I'm like, mom, I need my bike, I'll be happy if, if I had my bike. And you know, my mother went out, she broke the bank for me, 
didn't have much money, got me that bike. And you see, the point I'm trying to get at in this is that all of us in here have had times like that in our childhood. And see, these, these experiences have marked us. They, they, they set us on a trajectory in believing if I just do good enough, if I work hard enough, if I perform well enough, I might just get what I want. And see, in America, sadly, that's true in a lot of different ways. If you work hard enough at your job, you might just get a raise. If you work hard enough in your relationship, y'all might get married. If you work hard enough in school and you study real hard, you can get an A. You might get a scholarship. You see, in America, we learn to live by this, where we're pushed towards working hard and performing and trying to prove ourselves and find our worth and make it in society. And the problem is, that same belief system, we take that same drive, that same believing if I work hard enough, if I do enough, if I perform well enough, and we place it on Jesus. And when we come to Jesus, that doesn't work. We say, well, Jesus, look, look, if I work hard enough, if I don't curse, I don't lie, I don't steal, steal I, I don't cheat, I don't kill, I don't do all these things, I could get into heaven, right? Hear me, family. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't based off of anything you bring to the table. It's not based off of anything we do. It's based off of what he's done. We are loved not because of what we have done, but because he loved us when we were unlovable. You see, see, we're saved if we believe because he died for us on the cross. He gave it all, which makes this American ideology, if I work hard enough or if I do enough, perform and receive, it's backwards when it comes to knowing Jesus. Instead, the understanding is, hear me, he works first. We receive and believe, then we work from that where it's not about working to show your goodness or worth because you were made worthy when he died on the cross. That's where your worth was proven. It's like Pastor Luke said last week, some of you may remember, he said other religions and the world says obey first, then you do, then you're approved. But, but, but Jesus says, I give to you, I come to you, you're accepted in me first, now obey. See, it's a, it's a subtle difference, but it's a big difference. It's not based off of what you do. See, when we walk with Jesus, our worth has nothing to do with what we do and all to do with what he has done for us, who he is. But sadly, we forget that. And we treat Jesus just like me trying to get my new that's how we treat Jesus. And see, this is exactly what we're going to see in this passage today with this older brother in the text this morning where the elder brother was convinced that his own goodness and his resume warranted a reward from his father. See, he's the opposite of his younger brother where his younger brother is trying to find worth in, in everything he's doing outside of his father's house. He, he just wanted nothing to do with the father. He left. He said, give me my estate, father. Give me everything that's mine. And he went out and he spent it and he's trying to find his way there. But then this older brother is doing everything he's supposed to do, being obedient. And because of that, he feels like he should get a, get a reward. And tragically, 
he too misses the mark. He misses the mark. See, he too, just like the younger brother, misses that the father's love is not based off of what you do. It's not based off of what you bring to the table. And in his case, he thought that he should get something because of all the work he's done by sitting by his father's side. He was proved worthy. And again, the gospel says, I'm approved through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection based off of what he did. Therefore, now I obey. But this boy in the text, and sadly, some of us in here, we find our approval in our work. We find our approval in what we do. And because of that, we think we should be accepted. We think we're approved because of that. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the opposite. You see, we that believe work from approval, not for approval. Big difference. So today, I want to talk about this elder brother in our American culture, especially here in Chicago, where we live in a land of the elder brotherness and moralistic culture, where our work defines us and not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, I have two points I want to talk about. Number one, our moralistic attitude. Our moralistic attitude. And number two, the father's response. The father's response. Let's get it. Just a brief recap as we jump into the text this morning and where we are from a few weeks ago. Some of you may not have been here. See, the context of our passage right now in Luke chapter 15, it comes on the heels of this interaction that Jesus is having with the Pharisees and the scribes. He's hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes are there at the same time. Now, this is important to note that all of these people are in the same place at the same time. See, Jesus is hanging out with the sinners and the tax collectors and and the, the Pharisees and scribes are watching this. So they're watching everything that Jesus is doing. And and now because he's hanging out with them, they're they're questioning the validity of his ministry because he's hanging out with these sinful people. See, so by knowing this, that, that the Pharisees are questioning him, Jesus begins to share three parables. He begins in verse 3 where he talks about a man that has 99 sheep. He loses one sheep and, and he goes out throughout the land looking for his sheep. And when he finds it, he rejoices. He rejoices because he finds this one sheep. See, what Jesus is trying to get at is that he, he's trying to share his heart for the lost. He's trying to share his message for those that come to him. And, re, and he rejoices when they come to him. And, and we know this is his heart because he said in verse 7. But here's the thing. These Pharisees and the scribes are missing this. They're missing it because of their self-righteousness. They're missing it because of their arrogance. Look at what Jesus says in verse 7. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have or who need no repentance. Now, hear me. Jesus is not saying in this passage that he only cares for the people who do not know him or the ones that are are sinners, but what he's saying is that there's rejoicing when one comes to know him. Subtle difference here. He's not saying that you're way too far off, you sin too much, you can't come to me. He's not saying go clean yourself up, do these things, get yourself in line, and then come to me. He says, no, when one realizes they need me, there's rejoicing. When one comes to me and says, I need you, Jesus, there's rejoicing. And you see this with the younger brother in the text. He goes 
And he's in wayward living, and he's, he's on the ground in the midst of the pig slop, and he's eating it. And he's like, like, man, my father has servants. He has all these things at home. Why am I here? He comes to his senses, and he realizes he sinned against heaven and his father, and he goes back and he repents. And what happens? Celebration breaks out over the land. There's rejoicing all over the place. But here's the problem with the text today. The Pharisees and the scribes. Because of their self-righteousness and arrogance, they lack the humility to see their need for Jesus, let alone anybody else, because outside of themselves, everything's secondary. See, see, the problem is, it's like I said earlier, when we come to Jesus, when it comes to salvation, there's nothing inside of us that can save us. Our good works don't save us. Jesus' love and mercy and grace saves us. It's him who saves us. The Pharisees and the scribes have a problem because they are caught in their own legalism and work that promotes self-righteousness instead of God's grace that brings about salvation. Again, our works don't save us. Jesus does. And see, this is the same problem with the elder brother in this text. We're introduced to him in verse 25, and the text tells us that he's out in the field. He's out in the field, and we can't just skim over this piece where it talks about him out in the field because this is very significant. He's in the field doing what he's always done. He's doing what good boys do. This is what daddy told you to do, be out in the field. So he's out in the field minding his daddy like a good old boy. He's in the field. That's what he's supposed to do. That's what his daddy told him to do. See, the son is not concerned with the younger brother being gone at all. He's only concerned with what he's supposed to be doing. He doesn't care that he's at home. It's all about him. And friends, let me pause a little bit and say this. That's what self-righteousness looks like. That's what self-righteousness does. At the end of the day, we become so consumed with what we need to do and what's right that we don't care about anybody else. Anything outside of us is secondary. We're only concerned with ourselves. You see, the older brother is in the field doing what he's always done, doing what the father told him to do. He's not concerned with his lost little brother who came home. It's about him. Which brings us to our first point, our moralistic attitude. Renewal, this boy has been by his father's side his whole life. His whole life he's been by his father's side, working in the fields with him. He even was there when his father split up the estate and gave to the younger son. We see this in verse 12 of the text. He's right there. The father splits it among the two sons, and he says, here you go, here you go. You're sticking with me, but here you go. So he's right there. That means that he was there day after day after day when the father was crying, looking for his his long-lost son. He's seen everything, but he does not care. It's only about him doing right. See, he's been there the whole time and doesn't understand the heart of his father. He really doesn't know the father. See, the elder brother is in this place of moral conformity. He, he, he's learned to do right to get what he wants. He, he's in the fields. 
because he thinks he will receive favor from his father. In short, the difference between the younger son and the older is, is that the younger leaves and he tries to find his worth in self-discovery and, and his desires. And the older one's sitting there like, man, I'm going to do what daddy told me to do and then I'm going to get my reward because of that. I'm going to do it through obedience. And the hard truth is that there's a lot of us in this room that are the elder brother in this text. We just do right. I learned how to make it in society. I'm going to work hard. See, many times as followers of Jesus and believers, we can be in church our whole lives. We can read the Bible from front to back, memorize scriptures, go to VBS and church camp. I didn't even know about that until I was 20. My wife went every year. Church camp. I mean, we know, we know all these things, but we really don't know Jesus. Or maybe it wasn't being in church your whole life. Maybe, maybe you grew up like me and you, you, you simply thought of yourself as a good person. I, I do right in everything I do. And, and, and we follow the law. We live our lives by a certain uh, level of values or certain standards. We think of ourselves as being only good. But at the end of the day, you still find yourself never satisfied or always coveting what other people have. Now hear me. Trying to do right is not a bad thing. But many times, instead of doing right, causing a heart change inside of us, we just learn how to perform. Which in other words, we learn how to do Christianity. We learn how to do life instead of being compelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what happens is we become these little Christian boys and little Christian girls who live our lives according to a certain standard or a certain level of values and law when it, instead of Jesus' grace, instead of his love. So it's no longer about what Jesus did for me. It's about what can I do for Jesus? What, what do I bring to the table? This is what I'm bringing Jesus but hear me, the problem is not the actions themselves. The problem comes with our motivation that lies within our hearts. We're motivated to act morally correct because of what we think we will receive. You see, moralism, we're expecting reward. And what happens is we never receive what we think we should. We never have enough because performance or being morally correct, it never ends. It never ends. It goes on and on. We will never be good enough for anyone. And the sad thing is most of the time we're never good enough for ourselves. The standard's so high we can never meet it. There's no end goal. I, I call it the hamster wheel of moral conformity. It just goes on and on and on. The rat race continues. It's like a dog chasing his tail over and over again. It's never going to end. It's never going to end. You keep on doing the same thing. We will never be good enough. We'll never be satisfied enough. We'll, we'll never achieve enough. But what happens instead is that we end up angry. We end up prideful just like this little boy in the text. Our world, especially our city, Chicago, it gives us the image of a better life. If we work hard enough, if we pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, but instead there's this great chasm created between those who have wealth 
and those who have status and those who don't, who those who have tried and have failed. See, there's a great chasm between the two that, that don't meet in the middle. And what happens is that on both ends of the spectrum, they're both helpless. They're hopeless. You, you, you have one that's still trying to get more and more, and then you have one that's, that's trying to fail. They can't get anymore. There's both, there's, there, there's, they're both searching for hope, and they're hopeless. See, moralism and working hard doesn't give us enough. It doesn't. It doesn't give us a reward. It just sets us on a destructive trajectory. It sets us on this prideful trajectory. I love what um, Andrew Murray, old writer, he says in his book, Humility, love this book. He says, in heaven and earth, pride, self-exaltation is the gate and the birth and the curse of hell. See, it's the never-ending circle of me. The never-ending circle of me. The problem is, when you sit in this state of self-righteousness, when we sit there, this self-righteousness, religious elder brotherness, you never realize it because your whole spiritual life or well-being has become based off of how well you perform, how well you do. It's not the Father's work on your behalf. That's not what it's based off. It's a dangerous place. And truthfully, it's in all of us. It's in all of us. We see this all throughout the text in this interaction with this older son. In verse 28, it says that he's angry and he refuses to go in to celebrate with his long lost brother. He's angry. The boy has become so wrapped up in his own righteousness that he can't even celebrate or rejoice when his younger brother has come home. He's upset. He's mad. And really, he's just mad because he didn't get a party. He didn't get his reward for all the things that he's done. And see, the point is, friends, that although this boy has been around his father, because of his moralism, he's never really known the father. He's never really seen his own need. He's never noticed that he needed the father, too. It's a dangerous place. You see, self-righteousness and pride... They're like diseases that are deep down within, a, within our bodies. And, and we, most of the time, we don't even see the symptoms. We don't see the problems. We don't see them when they come out. We don't know those symptoms. Pride shows itself in very different ways. And I'm not just talking about the dude that's walking down the street that's outwardly arrogant, that's talking about, I'm the man. I'm the man. I got the plans. I can make it rain. I'm going to do all these things. I'm not talking about that man or that woman. That's not who I'm just talking about when I talk about pride. I'm also talking about the person where... They have a lot of false humility within them. That's pride. The person where you go and ask them, how are you doing today? And they say, they crack a smile and they say, I'm doing okay. When in all actuality, they're literally dying on the inside. I mean, let's be honest. That's still pride. Because at the end of the day, you didn't, it wasn't that you didn't want to burden that person by how you're doing, so you, so, so you didn't tell them. It was because you didn't want them to have a different perception of you. See, that, that, that's performance at its best. That's pride at its best. That's false humility. Let's be honest, that's pride. This elder brother in this text, he knows how to perform. And because of this, he, he, he doesn't know or understand the Father's love for him. And that's many of us in this room. 
And because of this, he's left in this state of failing to see his own need. But instead, he gets upset and he's angry at his father. Let me ask you, have you ever been mad at God before? I mean, let's be honest this morning. You ever been upset with God? Like, you've done all the right things. You've been reading your Bible. You've been going to church. You're doing all these things you think are the right. You're not sinning. You're like, I'm doing all these things right. And, and, and at the end of the day, people over there that are doing wrong and they're doing everything bad, you're like, man, how do they get everything? You're upset because God didn't give you what you think you deserve, right? I mean, we're, we're mad at them. I've been there too. And the question I have to ask myself, which I want to question all of you guys, is do you, do you step back and say, man, is my serving Jesus based off of my moralism? Based off of what I do, or is it based off of what he's done for me? Is it based off his grace and love for me? Where's, where's my faith coming from? I mean, when we get upset at God, a lot of times we need to just step back, pump the brakes a little bit, check our hearts. Where's that coming from? Where's it stem from? See, sometimes without even knowing it, the cause of our anger and destruction, lack of patience, stems from a place of moralism. It's dangerous. We have to vigilantly be aware of our heart motivation so that we don't miss the Father's acceptance, so that we don't miss the Father's love, so that we don't base his love based off of what we do. Instead, we look at what he's done for us. Are you vigilantly guarding your heart against this, this moralism? Moralism, hear me, doesn't work with Jesus. It pushes you farther away. Look back at this passage with me in verse 28. Before the son comes out and he's able to say anything, I love what happens because he, he's in the midst of it, he's mad, he's angry, he's not coming into the party. And the father comes out and the text says he entreats him and he does it just like he does the, old, the younger son. He pleads with him. He says, come into the celebration. And, and, and the, the grace of the father in this text is amazing to me. It, it's outstanding. It, the, he has one son who's irresponsible and being disrespectful. And, on the, uh, and another one who's followed the rules. He's done all these things. And now he's upset and being disrespectful because he thinks he should get a reward. The father has two lost sons, two lost sons who need love and grace from him. But the older son, he, he refuses, basically like, that, that, that's not enough, daddy. I, I'm not coming to the party. That, that, that's not enough. See, the son in this passage is mirroring now the grumbling Pharisees we saw in verse 2. He, he's the main reason Jesus is giving this parable. It's really about him. He's the real lost one. But, but, but the son is, is stuck in the hard place because he's never just worked alongside the father to be with the father. It has always been so that he could receive something. Again, friends, you have one son trying to find his identity and his desires and in the world jumping into everything and yet another one trying to find it in what he does. He doesn't want the father. He just wants what the father can give him. It's the exact same thing we saw with the younger son, but at least the younger son's like, hey, daddy, give my estate. I'm about to go spend all of this money. I'm about to do this. And then this dude, at the end of the passage, he's upset because he worked all these days. He's been obedient. He says, I should get something too. See, he can't even receive the brother with gladness because in his moralism, he, he, he believes that he should be dead and left out on the street. 
And friends, hear me. I know this is tough, but let's not be so quick to shake our heads at this older brother because we do the same things from time to time. I mean, it's easy for us when we think we're doing right and we're we're living the right life. We're like, man, I'm doing better than those over there. It's easy to look down on people who don't live like us, who don't love like us, who don't do the things that we do. Like, man, those people on the south side, I'm better than, at at least I'm not shooting people. West, at least I'm not shooting people, at least I'm not a gang member. But here's the thing. We look down on other people, but if we were to open up doors of our house, marriage is on the rocks. Struggling with alcohol. Struggling with pornography. We're struggling with all these addictions. And here's the thing. Just because we look better on the outside, just because our mess is able to be hidden, or better yet, we learned how to perform in society that doesn't make us better than anybody else. I mean, let's think about it. Let's ask the hard question. How many times in the last week, better, better yet, let's say the last day, have you compared yourself to somebody else? I said, man, at least I'm not, I'm not out there doing that. I'm a little better than that. I know that's tough. This message is tough, but it's true. A lot of times we're, we're sitting in this elder brother position. That's us. Tim Keller, pastor in New York, he says it this way. He says, the moralistic view of life says, the problem with the world is not me, it's them. It's those immoral types. These kinds of people, talking about moralistic people, usually stay at home They stay near where they were raised, and they live very good lives. See, this is the exact state of where this older brother is in the text. He can't believe that his father, after being publicly disgraced and disrespected by the younger son, would kill the fattened calf and let him back in the house, have a celebration for him. Now, you got to pause here and say, look, look, this brother has a valid reason to be upset because by bringing this younger son back into the house and and reconciling with him, he's already spent his one-third of the estate now. When he comes back into the family... And the father reconciles him. Now the older brother has to share his two-thirds with the younger brother. You know, so when I read that, I knew that. I'm like, man, I would be mad too. Man, this brother been out here doing all of these different things, and now I have to share my stuff with him? I have to give him my part of the estate? Friends, he doesn't care that he's safe. He's just mad. Because to him, it seems like his sin and everything else is being celebrated. He doesn't understand what true repentance looks like. He doesn't understand that he actually needs to repent too. I mean, look at what he says in verse 29 and 30 of the text. After the father pleads with him. He answered his father and he says, look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you you killed the fattened calf. I mean, look at the audacity of this little guy. This is crazy. I mean, pay attention to his language and the wording. He says, the boy says, look, not dad, not father. He says, look, he's basically saying, look, you He's yelling at his father. Now, now this was an honor culture. You didn't do that. That's a big no-no, especially not in front of other people. But wait, he's not done yet. He's just getting started. 
He, he says, look you, these many years I have served. And the word here in the Greek for serve is doulos, which means save or bond servant. So this boy is saying, look how many years I've slaved for you. He, he never served willingly. He thought of it as slavery. Bond servant. He, he said, I have slaved for you, never disobeyed you, and you didn't even give me a young goat. Not a regular goat, but a young goat. He, he basically said, you never gave me the smallest of gifts, God. That, that you never given me anything. But when this son of yours, hence the word yours, not my brother, when he comes home and devoured your land and gave it all to prostitutes, you give him the fattened calf? I mean, this son is going in on his father. And as I looked at this and I studied this, I, I was like, man, I was startled because I'm like, man, I want to slap this little boy for the daddy. Because let me even start to posture my lips to a way where I said this to my father. Look, as soon as I said, look, y'all, my lips would have been on the floor, not face. My lips would have been slapped off. Some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. That's old school. You didn't talk to elders this way. He's out of line. Everything he's saying is outrageous to his dad. I mean, could you imagine one of your kids coming up to you and, and talking to you like this? Saying these things to you after you've clothed them, put food on the table, put a roof over their heads. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? I mean, his argument and his attitude, it boils down to the fact that he feels like his actions and works warrant a reward. Friends, hear me. Moralism seeks a reward. This is why we end up a lot of times tired and despondent towards God. We're upset a lot of times, and, and the words that start coming out of our mouths is like, man, God, I, I've been reading. I've been doing everything I'm supposed to do. I'm not sinning. I'm not doing all this going to church, but you still haven't moved in my life because we're looking for a reward. We're looking for him to respond based off of what we do. See, we work and we work and we work trying to seek approval from our father and others when Jesus has already done all that needs to be done on the cross. He's already died to death. And our reward as believers, if we believe in him, it's not here on earth. It's in heaven with him. And that doesn't mean that we can't have nice things here on earth. We can't have rewards here on earth. But our value and our hope should never be wrapped in anything we achieve or gain on this earth. It should be solely wrapped in Jesus Christ. We come to Jesus because of what he's done for us. And when we truly understand that, it doesn't matter how much stuff you have or you achieved or you don't have because you're satisfied because he's all you need. He's all you need. Friends, our walk with God or salvation, it's, it's, it's not like working hard to get a promotion at your job. It's the opposite. It's a gift. It's a gift that we don't work for. And besides it being a gift, the Bible tells us that our works are like filthy rags when it comes to him. Which means there's nothing in us that compares to a holy God. So in essence, there's nothing that he can gain from us. But here's the thing. Guess what? When we come to him and say, Jesus, I need you, we gain everything. Life abundantly. Life everlasting in him. He gives it all. Renewal moralism, it leaves us in this prideful, destructive place. Just like the elder brother in our text.
where it's hard to see our depravity. It's hard to see our mess. It's hard to see our need for God. See, the moralistic person needs God just as much, if not more, than the wayward little brother. Is that you this morning? Is that you? Better yet, if we're truthful this morning, that's probably a little bit of all of us in here. I mean, that, we, we probably can see ourselves in this elder brother all over this, even me. And this is why I love the father's response after this. Look at the text with me as we come home today in, in verse 31 and 32 where the text says, he says, and he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. See, the father in this passage, he could have thrown the older son out just like he could have done to the younger brother just because of his request. But instead, let's pay close attention to his language toward the son. We've already seen what the son has said to him. He begins talking to his son by very affectionately saying, son, son. He could have yelled and kicked him out. But instead, he says, son. He recognizes him in their relationship. He says, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. He doesn't kick him out. He very affectionately explains himself. Friends, here's the thing. Here's the thing with this. This older brother has been with the father his whole life, whole life. And he's never really understood how much he was loved. He's never truly understood the relationship. He's slave for him, he says. He didn't understand that his father loved him because if he really understood that, he would serve from a place of privilege, say, thank you. He didn't know him as the one and only true portion, as his true reward. Hear me, friends. He had been working for something his whole life that he didn't have to work for. And you know what that was? His sonship. His position who he actually was. He was working for acceptance, a relationship when it was there right in front of him the whole time. You see, some of us in this room have been in church our whole lives and we've never really known the goodness of Jesus. Maybe it's not church. Some of us have been here living our lives according to a certain standard, trying to do good, following all the rules our whole life, and we've never truly been satisfied. You see, the truth is no matter whether you have been in church your whole life and, or you've been out here following a set of rules, been this great moralistic person trying to achieve and trying to do well, we will never find true satisfaction in either one of those places. And here's the hard and simple truth. You see, just like the son had to hear it from his father, we need to hear it too, which is that God's acceptance is not found in anything we do or anything we bring to the table, but instead it's right here in front of us. It's right there in front of you the whole time through Jesus' sacrifice. But our moralism, it keeps us from truly understanding that. It keeps us from seeing it. 
You see, his work on the cross is the only key to salvation. When he died with those nails in each one of his hands and the nails in his feet, family, dying the most gruesome death that he could have died on the cross for you and I, our sins were taken upon him and he took them to the grave once and for all and he raised three days later with power in his hands, signifying that he defeated sin and death. He did all of that for us so that if we believe, we can have life everlasting in him, not a partial life or life just here, but life with him eternally. Eternally. So the thing becomes, no, 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 you don't have to work. You don't have to work for your salvation. Just believe. You, you don't have to do right. Just believe. You don't have to perform. Just believe. Your goodness won't save you, but if you recognize his, his goodness, it will save you. So as we get ready to end and the band comes forward, notice, friends, I love how the passage ends. It ends with the loving words of the father to the oldest son. It ends like this on purpose. There's no response from the older brother. So, so we don't know if he responded. We don't know what he thought. We don't know what happened here. We're all left with just knowing the father's love towards the older son despite the older brother's pride and moralistic attitude. We're left with that. Renewal. Jesus is ultimately making the appeal to the Pharisees and the scribes that begin this string of parables right here. Jesus is very graciously saying to them, repent, repent, know that I'm here, know my goodness, know who I am, know that I'm right here in the flesh. And guess what? I don't need you to do anything for me. I don't need you to do anything or bring it to the table. Just believe in me. He's making this appeal to the Pharisees. And guess what? He's doing the same for us. He's saying, here I am. I don't need you to do anything. I've done all the work on the cross. He's saying, just admit that you need me. Admit that you've been trying to live it your way your whole life. You've been trying to do good. You've been trying to find it in your way. and You're trying to find satisfaction, but you still have been searching for it. He says, admit that you need me. I I'm here. All I've done everything for you. I've given it all up for you. There's nothing left to do. I've done it all. And that's some of us today. Friends, if that's you, won't you just call out and say, Jesus, I need you. You've been living your life based off this moralistic set of values. And, and you maybe you didn't even know it till today. Maybe you were sitting there saying, I didn't know Jesus. I, I, I thought I knew Jesus, but I've been really trying to do it my own way. Maybe saying, this is the first time I've ever heard him say that, that I love you. And he went out of his way for me. He did all of these things for me. And he died on the cross for me. Maybe that's you today. So every, every head bow, this is what I want to do. Because here is the truth. It, it's not just some of us in here. I mean, the truth of the matter is that we all deal with moralism. Whether we call ourselves believers or we don't. That's all of us. That's me too. So this is what I want to do. Whether you know Jesus or not, whether you're, whether you're a believer or you're not, and you're sitting in that seat and you're saying, that's me. I'm struggling with my moralistic ways. I mean, all of us struggle with this. is what I want you to do. I want you to take a bold step today, and I want you to meet me down front. And I, I'm not going to do anything funny. All I want to do is pray for you. I want to pray with you because that's me too. If that's the whole church, we will just have a prayer service right here.
Because the truth is, and this is why I want you to do this, because I want to put this thing to death. I want to say, Jesus, take this moralism away from me. Take my self-righteousness away from me. Fill it up with you, Jesus. I don't want anything else. I just want you. If that's you, won't you come down front and meet me right now as we pray together? See, because the thing is, if we keep doing, we keep working hard, we keep trying to make it the way we want to do it, you know what we're telling Jesus? We're saying, your sacrifice wasn't enough. When you died for me, it wasn't enough. I need to do more. I need to add to it. And the truth is, he's done it all. Won't you be vulnerable with me right now and just come down here and just pray with me this morning?